This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. And here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. Today, I am delighted to be joined by my great and now old friend, Senator Marco Rubio. Marco, who is the son of Cuban immigrants, grew up in Miami and Las Vegas, where his father worked as a bartender at a hotel and his mother was a housekeeper at another hotel. After graduating from the University of Florida and the University of Miami Law School, Marco began his career in elected office as a city commissioner, then as a member of the Florida House, and as a speaker of the Florida House. He was elected to the United States Senate in 2010 and has been a leader on a variety of issues, ranging from the United States support for Israel to immigration to Latin America, where the New York Times has called him a virtual secretary of state for Latin America. Having known Marco for more than 10 years, there is a remarkable dynamic that I have noticed in every conversation with him. Whenever a subject comes up with Marco, Latin America, Israel, any domestic issue, Marco's command of the facts, data, and nuances about it, combined with the thoughtful consideration of all the circumstances around it, leads one to conclude that he is speaking with one of the world's leading experts on the subject, someone who probably works at a think tank or university. Then it takes a minute to remember that you're talking with a U.S. senator with responsibility for a lot of issues and a lot of other responsibilities. This is followed by the promise to tell the next person who has a cynical thing to say about politicians that they should meet Marco Rubio. So Marco, welcome to The Rabbi's Husband. Thank you. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for that introduction. I know just enough about everything to, I can talk about anything. Somebody long time told me, just be able to speak knowledgeably about any topic for four minutes and you'll fool them all. Well, we, we've got a lot longer than four minutes in that. And- I know. So we'll find out more about that today. Exactly. And the passage you've chosen today, which is such an interesting one, is Proverbs 3, 5 through 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your paths straight. So uh, tell us, what is Proverbs 3, 5, 6 about? And uh, why did you choose it as a passage to discuss? You know, it's interesting. I think it's the first lesson of Judaism, and obviously it becomes the first lesson of Christianity. If you think about trust, we break it down into some of the key words and what they mean in the, uh, in the Hebrew. The, the word trust is to be confident, to be sure. That's one of the interesting things about, about, about um, and translation. You know, these, these the verses that are translated into multiple languages over time sometimes can lose their meaning. So you have to rely on someone that knows what the individual words meant to the people who wrote them and what word they chose, you know, because there's different words that, that could be translated the same way, but they lose their meaning in the translation. But the word trust is, is really, in, in when it was written, it was written to mean to be confident, to be sure. The heart we would think of as simply, you know, what we mean in, in contemporary society, the heart is, you know, your emotions. And, and that's certainly a part of it. And, and, and this is your feelings. But the word that they picked was a word that extends to beyond your feelings. It's, it's your entire sort of uh, decision-making uh, basis. So it's your feelings, but it's also your will. It's also your intellect. So it's trusting these things. And then, and then lean and that's a you know a word that that probably the, the three the one that lo- loses the least of its uh, meaning is is really about support and a lot of this has to do at the time of course uh, in the era of the kings that these that they would rely or lean on a series of advisors of, of different people who surrounded the king and, and helped the king make decisions and and so forth and so what this is basically saying is that be confident and sure 
about your your feelings, your will, and your intellect in in the Lord, and lean on on that for support for your for your decisions. Now, so so that's the first lesson because if, if that doesn't happen, then nothing else makes sense. So if you go through the law, or if you go through the Ten Commandments as they were handed down, why would you believe any of them? If you don't trust in the source of those commandments, in, in essence, those commandments in many ways I view as the uh, owner's manual, right? When you buy a car, where you buy one of those bikes that I see in your background here, I don't know if people can see it or not. That's all ambicycles, yes. Is that what? What is that? What is your back? People will be able to see, it, but what is that background? Is that the? Those are the ambulance behind a bunch of look like uh, paramedic ambulances. Well, so so these are um, medically equipped motorcycles from United Hatzal in Israel, and. Uh, the volunteers who are riding the motorcycles can get to the scene of any trauma, heart attack, stroke, choking, or bleeding within 90 seconds because the system dispatches the closest first responder. So that's that's the scene in the virtual background. Excellent. Yeah, and I actually saw that in one of my visits. I saw they looked like I thought they were BMW bikes. No, I don't think they're BMW bikes. I'm not sure what the brand is. The brand actually keeps changing, but they're fast. The one I saw over there was, and it was pretty impressive to see them respond. And it made all the sense. It was like a big traffic jam. They can go through the traffic and get to people. But back to our topic, those, whether it was those bikes or the ambulance behind it or a car you buy or whatever it may be, it comes with an, a manual, an instruction on how to use it. Well, exactly. And when we talk about the Torah, we say, what kind of book is the Torah? It's a guidebook. It's not a history book. It's not a law book. It's not a cookbook. It's a- by, by, the, by the manufacturer. Yeah, exactly. It's a guidebook from the manufacturer. Right. And so when you look at some of the things and it says there, well, you know, honor your father and mother and, and don't steal and don't murder people and don't cheat and don't lie and don't worship idols. And people say, well, why? I mean, if, if you don't trust and you don't lean on the, the Lord for support and you don't trust in the Lord, then you don't need to follow any of these things. They're just suggestions, not something from the manufacturer. And so w- without that basic lesson, without this following that instruction, of, of trusting in the Lord with all your heart, with trusting in the Lord with your feelings, your will, and your intellect, and, and leaning on Him for your support in making your decisions, then none of the commands or any of the precepts of any religion, for that matter, are possible. Now, that, that, now let me just say one more point. This doesn't mean you don't use your own intellect, your own understanding. One of the great things is that in, in the very beginning, the Lord makes very clear that we are created in His image. And in my mind, when you're created in His image, for example, the, the, the Lord is creative. He's a creator. He created the entire universe. And so we are created in his image. That means we are also creative. So when you, you see expressions of that in art and in uh, literature and in, and in all sorts of things that we do in human endeavors. So it's a reflection of why we're created in the, in the image. But one of the things that we're created in his image, and that includes intellect. So the Lord is the Lord of physics. He's the Lord of science. Science is but a brief, small little glimpse at the much broader and more complex nature of, of, of the creator of the universe. And so it doesn't mean we don't use those things that we've been given by our creator, our intellect and our understanding and, and, and to, to, to form plans and to pursue them. It just means that as we do so, we are trusting, we are confident, we are unsure that the commands he has given us apply to that, that, that there, whenever there comes a time when what our will and our intellect put us in conflict with what the Lord has instructed us to do in circumstances such as those, we can either side with and lean on the creator of the universe so we can decide that we mortals who were fortunate live 90 years 85 years on this earth somehow have more knowledge than the person who made the 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 entity you know the the creator of the whole universe and that to me is sort of the fundamental uh without without that kind you're not going to follow this you might as well not follow any of it because it just won't make any sense to you that's right and and the next part of your chosen passage is also so instructive lean not on your own understanding because 
human beings, we have a fantastic inner lawyer who is always ready to justify just about anything with very articulate and seemingly convincing arguments. And so what the what this, the problems are telling us is don't lean on your own understanding because you're going to fool yourself if you give yourself the chance. Instead, trust in the Lord with all your heart. It's almost opposing trusting in the Lord and leaning on ourselves with our own understanding. Yeah. So from the very beginning, you see the lesson in the story of Adam and Eve where they're told, you know, you can you, you be fruitful, multiply. This garden is yours, this beautiful earth. There's no death. There's no you know, destruction. There's no pain. There's only one thing you can't do. I don't want you to eat from the from the fruit of the tree of knowledge. And of course, that's the first temptation, right? And that is, of course, he doesn't want you to have that because then you'll be as smart as he is. Or why can't I eat from the tree of knowledge? In essence, you begin, your own understanding begins to tell you that the creator doesn't know what he's talking about. And that, of course, unleashes the events of human history. And then the other that I think is pretty dramatic is that in the Exodus, as they, their own understanding told them, there's no way we're going into that sea. I mean, we're all going to drown. And it's at that moment when the Lord has to act on their behalf. So it was a, despite all that had happened to that point, God had you know, proven himself now repeatedly over a period of time. I mean, these are people that have been in bondage for generations. So they are let go. They're freed as a result of a series of miraculous events in which the, the Lord showed his hand. And then when they reach the, the, the sea's edge, their own understanding tells them, I'm not going in there because we're going to drown and we're going to die. And we're trapped between Pharaoh's chariots on one side and the drowning on the sea. And it's where God proved himself again. Of course, as the Exodus continues time and again, you see this, this uh, and it's really symbolic of the story of humanity. And that is time and again, no matter how much the Lord has proven himself, we constantly find reason to doubt that he'll do it again. And so again, this this passage speaks to that, and and it's you know it's 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 throughout the the stories that we find in the in the history of mankind. And God has given us through the Bible a book that explains to us, and it's very complicated fashion in some respects. In other respects, it's very simple because it's a great guidebook. So therefore we must follow it. It's complicated because there's, because life's complicated and there's so many different rules and so many nuances and so many circumstances, but God instructs us do what is right and what is good as, as he says in Deuteronomy. And it opposes here in this passage to your own understanding, because if given to our own understanding, many people will inevitably pursue our own interests and justify the pursuit of our own interests with some kind of rationale that does not correspond with what God wants. And we see this time and time again. I mean, very few people actually think they're bad people. Very few people actually think they're doing bad things. They just think of these fantastic justifications to do what they really should know is bad. And that's what it's telling us here is don't lean on your own understanding. Lean on the Lord. And it says elsewhere in, in the Bible, in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. There's always other people around you who can help steer you towards the right and away from your own understanding, which can be deceptive. Yeah. And, and so that's important too, in the sense that that really speaks to the issue of accountability. So there's a reason why when you're doing something that you know isn't right, you don't want people to know about it. And so when you're surrounded by people that hold you accountable and in whose judgment you trust, that doesn't mean that they're infallible. It simply means that the more eyes are on something, the more likely you are to be held accountable for your actions, for your decisions. How have you seen that as a senator? Well, it's interesting. We, we, I think in many ways it plays out in twofold. The first is, you know, one of the things that always guides us uh, many of the times is a decision that if, if something's being pursued in public policy, but it's being done in a way that, that's quiet, that we don't want there to be broad public awareness, that's always a red flag. Now, I'm not talking about classified information. I'm not talking about politically sensitive information on the international realm or what have you. 
or things that deal with someone's fundamental rights that might be violated through disclosure. But I am saying, particularly, I would say my time in the state legislature was more attuned to this. There was always this effort by some, and it took great pride in joining, sneaking things into a bill or into the budget at the end of a session, and no one would catch it. And my view always was, if you have to sneak it in, then that means there's something wrong with it. There's, there's, that's always a red flag. And so I think that that is a temptation that exists time and again. And it's, and it's look, you, you said a very important thing. No one thinks they're a bad person, but we all are selfish in the sense that the commandment against stealing, why do you steal? You steal because someone else possesses something that you need and you want and, it, and you need it and you're going to go get it irrespective of what it means to them. And the instruction against stealing is not just a moral one, it's a practical one. If, in fact, we lived in a culture in which stealing was acceptable, then we would spend all day stealing from each other. We would not be able to live together in families, in societies, and countries, and communities. So there are practical implications to it. But that's, that's, that's the difference between human understanding. Human understanding is I need something and I'm going to do what it takes to get it. And godly understanding, which is there's a, this may be what your humanity is telling you, but this is why you shouldn't do it. And trust me, you shouldn't do it. It, it. In many ways, it's like the parent-child relationship. And uh, and I consider humanity, even despite all the elements, to still be infants. And there are things you don't allow an infant to do. And the infant doesn't understand why. Why can't I stick my finger into that thing that looks like a happy face in the wall? We know it to be an electrical outlet. And bad things happen when you stick your finger into the happy face looking thing. So it's the sort of thing that I think is important for us, no matter what realm uh, we're engaged in. Now, in terms of um, lean not on your own understanding, um, as a senator, how apt are people to criticize you? Let's take your life as a senator to your life before a senator. Are people more or less likely to criticize you as a senator? Not the media, but just people in, in person when they see you. Are, are you are more or less likely as a senator versus representative or not in office at all? A state representative or not? Well, I think it works both ways. I think people are more likely to be deferential in some ways. So you have to constantly remind yourself that how someone might treat you is not the same way they treat everybody else. And um, because they're being deferential to your office and what have you. And I also think people make assumptions, right? People make assumptions. You know, I know uh, for example, I, I still have people that I know very well. And there's this meme or this rumor that's been going around on Facebook for for over a decade now that if you're a member of Congress, you you get your salary for the rest of your life and that you don't pay social security. And then none of these things are true. These are all myths, right? If, if I resigned from the Senate today, they would stop paying me. Um, I, I pay social security, gets paid, I pay FICA like everybody else does for my Senate salary. But there's these notions that, that we get these free things and so forth. So a lot of people make assumptions on the basis of that. I think there, there's assumptions based on, obviously built on partisanship and things of that nature in a very divisive time. But that comes with the territory. Uh, I think that's true no matter in sports. You know, I think about sports, for example. Um, you know, if you're the quarterback of a team, you're going to get a disproportionate share of the credit when your team wins and a disproportionate share of the blame when it loses. You could win 40, you could lose 45, 44 because the defense gave up 45 points. And you scored 44, but you're going to get the blame for not being good enough. You're going to be judged by that. The same with, with coaching. You know, you call a play and if it works, you're a hero. If it doesn't, fans think you're the dumbest person ever. And why are you coaching a team? So I think that's true no matter where you are. And the higher your level of responsibility, the higher your profile, the more criticism you open up to, fairly or unfairly. But that's not something I can control. That's a factor that's in place. And you, 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 all you can do is your best and then allow things to play out. So how do you think people in, in any uh, walk of life, whether they're a, a senator or a constituent doing anything, 
can best manifest one of the lessons of this proverb where it says, lean not on your own understanding, but to receive the understanding of God as often is channeled through the wisdom of other people. What kind of practical advice do you think can be derived from this passage so that people can live better, happier, and more meaningful lives? Well, I think the first is just is under, is knowing God's teachings and, and really digging into it. And I don't think there's any argument that can be made that the Bible is the most influential book in human history. All the three major faiths rely on what Christians call the Old Testament. It's often forgotten, but in the Islamic tradition, the entire Old Testament is accepted, as well as in Christianity. Uh, in fact, you, you can't really understand Christianity if you don't understand pre-Christianity. It's all built on that. We forget at the end of the day that, that, that Jesus of Nazareth was a first century Jewish man living in Judea and Samaria. And so his worldview and every, all the words he said have meaning in the context of that experience. He was, uh, and he was observant uh, as well. So, so the, the understanding teachings, the foundations of it are critical because you can't apply something you don't understand. I don't think you have to approach these things as superstition. I think you have to approach these things as practical. I think there is not a single instruction or a single um, uh, commandment that doesn't stand up to scrutiny as to being wise and the right thing to do. So I think that begins with that. And I think you have to surround yourself with people that value that as well. And then I think you have to do the best you can using the gifts of intellect and wisdom that we've been given as rational creatures to apply them in our daily circumstances, understanding that we will fall short, as many of the great prophets and figures in the Old Testament fell short. I mean, King David was a phenomenal leader, certainly a, a historic one in, in, in the context of, um, of so much of what happened in the, in the Old Testament, and yet he failed, but he was held accountable for his failures. And he was held accountable by someone, you know, by by someone who came to him and said, you know, what you've done is wrong with Bathsheba and you need to atone for it and there's going to be a consequence for it. So you have to, I think there's a couple of things, understanding teachings, understanding the meaning of them, and then having people around you that value those teachings and will hold you accountable to it are are two really practical things that we can do in our daily lives. And then understand we'll we'll fall short. What a beautiful structure. Imagine if if people just said, I'm going to commit myself to learning more of the Bible today than I knew yesterday, and I'm going to surround myself with people who I will respect, who I will listen to, and who will accede to, who will also derive their wisdom from the same principles. It would just be a much better and happier life if people did exactly that. Well, and so much of our, particularly in Western society and civilization, so much of our legal system is built on these things. They are. I mean, the, the fact of the matter is that people forget that, but I mean, we virtually all of the Ten Commandments at some point for the most part, have been things that are reflected in our legal system, some straight out. Even tort law and contract law, it's all in numbers in Deuteronomy. Correct. So it came from somewhere, right? Some people, we didn't, there wasn't like this think tank that came up with the stuff. I mean, it's, it, it, these are the, the, so many of our laws and, and, and so many of our policies. So in America, for example, we honor our father and mother and not legally, you know, there's not a law against disrespecting your parents, but it's the reason why we care about people that are retired. I believe it's the reason why we have Social Security, why we have Medicare, why we have nursing care facilities, why we uh, treat people, why we have hospice care. These are all things that we do as a society that they don't, they were pure economic decisions, you know, that they wouldn't make sense from an efficiency standard. That's the way you're judging the world. But if you're judging the world from a moral perspective, that's why we honor our father and mother in these, in these ways. So I think that's really important to remember, too. We live in the world of the Bible. So how do you enhance your understanding of the Bible? And how do your colleagues enhance your understanding of the Bible institutionally? Do you have Bible studies or any structures like that where you study the word together and learn together and grow together in that way? 
Yes, there's two things that happen. There's a there's a weekly um, what they call a, a prayer breakfast, and it's really uh, the you know cross denominational, multi tradition. So we have the Jewish members are there, and and uh, Christian members are there of various denominations. And it really is a time in which every week there's a speaker that's invited to come and sort of speaks about a passage. Uh, you know, the the chaplain is involved, but isn't really preaching or anything of that nature. And then you sort of share your your story or what have you. And then there's a conversation. So it's a good opportunity to kind of get to know your colleagues in ways that the public never does. I always tell people that, you know, the only thing you know about some of my colleagues is what you heard them say on CNN or in a debate or whatever it might be. I know them as a full person in many ways, in many cases. So so I thought that's important. There is a weekly Bible study as well that I'm not a part of, frankly, because it comes in the middle of the day. But one of the things that I try to do every morning, and I don't always do it, but I try to every morning, if people notice on Twitter that I post uh, a Bible verse, and almost exclusively from the Old Testament, because I wanted to speak to as many people as possible, since it's something that all three faiths can rely on. Every now and then, of course, they'll have a New Testament. For example, my choice today was, but from the Beatitudes, but the but generally, it's an, an, I rely very heavily on Proverbs too. Um, and so, a lot of times, the media will see what I put up and think there's some sort of political subcontext to it. There really isn't. It oftentimes just comes to what I read that morning. As Freud says, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. Exactly. And sometimes it's just something I read that morning and it spoke to me. So I try to do that regularly. It doesn't take a lot of time, but if you sort of go into it and then. Catholicism is very, um, which I am a Catholic, Catholicism is very intellectually deep. So in the Catholic Bible, uh, underneath these passages, there's pretty extensive commentary on what it meant. And and so that, that gives you a little bit more depth. We're not talking about an hour, we're talking about 15, 20 minutes in the morning before the emails and the phone calls start. I try to do that every day. I don't always do it, but I try to do that every day to the extent I can. And I find like that's a pretty good investment of time. If you do that every day, you know, that's 365 passages a year. It starts to add up and, and sort of you start to build context. Context and habit. Um, so Marco, thank you for such a fascinating discussion about this uh, magnificent proverb. And the, uh, the final question always moves from one text, the sacred text of the Bible to another text, which is Andre Malraux's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. And he said, tells a story, he said, I, I just ran into a man with whom I served in the war. And he said, this man had saved a lot of Jews and then had become a parish priest. So I said to this priest, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, I've learned two things. One, everyone is much less happy than he seems. And two, there is no such thing as a grown-up person. So Marco, in your years of serving in the United States Senate since 2010, 10 years now, what are two things that you've learned about humankind? Well, I think that's a great question. And I think um, those observations are important observations that, that I would share those. But but I would add to it the following. I think, and this is hard to say, because some people, frankly, appear to, in our eyes to be beyond redemption in many cases. But for the most part, except for the most you know disfigured souls at this point, people who, for a variety of different reasons, have gone into a direction that, for, from a human perspective, is irredeemable, there is something special about every person you'll ever meet. and you know, what we value in society is special, is different. I mean, I, you, you could argue that a neurosurgeon is more important for society and for the well-being of a country than a basketball player, but the basketball player makes substantially more money. And I don't mean the starting basketball player. I mean, like the 11th guy on the roster makes substantially more money than any neurosurgeon in America. So everybody has a, something special about him, whether it's something that society values or not, whether it's something that will ever be talked about or not, and some of the most special people, some of the most or people will never know about. I mean, they exist in anonymity, and every single day they're making a difference in people's lives or in the world. 
So there's, there's a, because there's something special about it, what we all have in common is that we have something special about us, whether society values that or not, and which leads me to the second one, and that is everyone wants to be meaningful. In essence, everyone wants to matter. They want their time to matter. That's in great, it's programmed in our DNA. It's, 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 uh, it's part of our software. And that's why I believe you see people go into public service. That's why I see that you that after people make billions of dollars and become famous beyond their wildest dreams and have every material possession, they donate hundreds of millions of dollars and volunteer time and run for office because no matter how much money you make and how much material things you collect, you want to have an impact on people's lives. That's why I think you see people in sports and in entertainment say, we don't just want to do sports or acting and it's not meaningful what's meaningful is can i get involved in a cause can i save someone's lives so i really think so much about happiness which you talked about a moment ago is the ability to find what our special the talent or gift may be and it may be you know you're really good at organizing potlucks and raising money for your your your, your synagogue or your church and parish or and then applying it to something that's meaningful and makes a difference when people are not able to do those two things it's corrosive and so I think so much about life and it's so much about what I tell my kids is ideally you want to find a job that allows you to do something that's meaningful and that speaks to your skills. But no matter what, I hope you'll have a job that allows you the time and the flexibility to employ your special gift or talent in something that's meaningful, whether that makes you famous or not, whether that makes, whether it gets paid or not, whether it's recognized by society or not. And I think those are two things I've learned about everybody. Everybody wants to matter. They want to make a difference. And when they don't have a chance to make a difference, when that's denied to them, Oftentimes, that expresses itself in very negative ways um, and very negative anti-social behavior. Um, and I, I, I believe that explains a lot about what happens on a daily basis. What a beautiful formula. Identify the gift that God has given you and apply it to something meaningful. What a great lesson for all of our kids. That's what we're trying to do every day. And sometimes it's a job and sometimes it's something you do on your spare time. But whatever it may be, you know, it's, it's something that in the absence of it, I think it becomes corrosive. Well, Marco, thank you for such an interesting discussion. Um, as usual, uh, so many different ideas, so many insights, so many facts, and so many enduring observations come from you, um, in this case, from four lines of a magnificent proverb. Well, thank you for the opportunity to talk about it. 